This is Network Free Orient. Today we have with us Professor Salman Saeed speaking on the topic of post-positivism. So, Professor Saeed, um, first of all, I want to start this discussion by asking you what exactly do you mean by positivism in your work? Okay, um, I refer to the positivism not just in a sort of standard account as an attempt to um, reproduce social sciences and humanities along the lines of what people considered natural sciences were. So that's the kind of classical understanding of positivism. I mean that and a bit more than that, and I guess what I mean by that is a belief in a historical objective uh, realities which are separate from the process of analyzing them. So in a way, by positivism, I would argue in this sense, is fundamentally ahistorical. It doesn't allow for the fact that the world that we live in is being transformed by historical processes, therefore things that we take for granted as being permanent are only permanent in particular kinds of configurations of particular kinds of historical forces. So that's the first element of that. Now linked with that is my idea, pushing forward this idea that really um, the emergence of the contemporary university, the genealogy university, the organization of the various disciplines come about at the same time as you have the emergence of um, Europe as a means of understanding the world itself. So in a sense, the formation of European identity and the formation of universities are not just coincidentally linked. I would argue that they are fundamentally linked. Um, they are in a causal relationship. And that produces a certain kind of challenge because the idea of the production of knowledge is the knowledge understands the world which is out there. But if the world out there is being created by the process or facilitated by the process of knowledge formation, then there's no out there. So in a sense, then there's a kind of a loop. Mm -hmm. And my argument is this, that the Western episteme is locked into this kind of Western uh, colonial enterprise and the world that is created is really not an independent reality as such. It's therefore the fact that the world responds to those categories is a process by which the world was formed rather than something which indicates to us the veracity and validity of those knowledge production processes in themselves. Rather than something that's just found out there, yeah. it's been put there. It's been, it's been put, put there. That's a better way of putting it. It's been put there for us to find, and mm. when we find it, doesn't confirm the fact that the, our methods of finding it are great. It actually alerts us to the fact that before the methods of finding it, there's also the methods of putting it there. Mm. And, and the problem with that comes in a more kind of... Um, specific sense is take a category like, for example, religion. I'm not sure that that category really works 
outside the experience of an Enlightenment reading of a particular history of Western Christianity. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And we know the literature around the formation of world religions, we know the kind of various other kinds of studies which have demonstrated, let's say for example Hinduism, how Hinduism came to be formulated as a religion through the colonial encounter, mm -hmm. etc. Now you can make the same kind of position, to what extent do we think that Islam is a religion? Um, in a way we all refer to it unproblematically, but I would say there is a problem if you think Christianity is a religion. Therefore Islam is like Christianity, well it is not like Christianity. And therefore either it becomes a or defective religion, which is the kind of normal orientalist narrative that Islam isn't quite what a religion should be, or we are simply not being able to understand how it functions. And this is why the whole thing about the scandalous presence of Islam comes through. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, you know, it is not useful immediately to start off with the idea there is a there's a world out there full of religions. And what we have to we can identify those religions, they're 14 in number, and they include X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that that isn't particularly helpful at this moment in time. So that's where I think the whole kind of social sciences enterprise, um, the whole kind of um, Western um, canon or Eurocentric, all these questions turn upon to the extent that the world that was created by Eurocentric epistemology may no longer be still functioning, in which case, what language, what analytical language do we have to understand things around us? Hmm. Okay. Um, I just want to pick up on one particular point that I found your work. In your work you speak about something called spiritual positivism and I want you to elaborate on that. What's the difference between positivism and spiritual positivism and you kind of, in your work you imply that there's, that they are actually different, that one is a slight, is an offshoot of the other, so you explain yeah, spiritual um, positivism. Well, I have to confess up, I mean the, the, the concept of spiritual positivism I got from Mohammed Siddham um, in a conversation, and I acknowledge that in the um, in the book, mm. um, and it, we were having a conversation, and he mentioned uh, this thing, and it just struck me that in fact, a lot of what we talk about religion is, and especially in relation to Islam, there is this drive to make it a part of the positive experience. So part of it would be that Islam consists of there are five pillars and these pillars have this kind of weight and therefore there's almost a kind of an attempt to talk about it as I put it in ontic terms. Um, now the issue comes to it, there is a way in which Muslims experience Islam but which is not necessarily codified but it is something that people can say oh this is appropriate behavior this is not appropriate behavior. Those signs of appropriateness are local um, they are governed by a conversation with the past, but there are also some signs which have changed over time and continue to change over time. Mm -hmm. And we know this. Now that transformation seems to be not particularly uh, problematic. It's just that how you be a Muslim now 
is not identical to how people were Muslims before and how people may have considered to be Muslims later on. Mm. It just means that there is a certain kind of conversation between those different kinds of iterations of being Muslim. Um, you know, so I think there are many, many ways of thinking around that. So spiritual positivism for me is an attempt to deny the historicity of that experience of Muslimness in various iterations. Would you say then that spiritual positivism at base is a denial of Muslim subjectivity? It is a denial of Muslim subjectivity because spiritual positivism only has an ontic understanding of Islam and my argument has always been for Muslims Islam has to be ontological or it's nothing. In a sense Islam is something has to be experienced mm as an ontological character which exceeds any of its kind of ontic manifestations. And in fact, in ordinary conversation and ordinary comportment, that is how Muslims act. We always think of Islam as something that exceeds any kind of particular uh, behavioral conformity. Mm. So we often say, oh, I know this person who um, prays five times a day, but their behavior is un-Islamic because mm. of this and this. Yeah. Now, sometimes that's gossip, sometimes that's uh, insubstantiated claims, but there is a, can you be a Muslim? Can you be a good Muslim? Can you be in the spirit of Islam if, for example, you are exploiting your factory workers? Mm. You may say your prayers five times a day, but you are actually carrying out conditions which are dangerous and harmful, or not paying your workers on time, or you are bullying, all kinds of behavior. Mm. Can you be a good Muslim or a Muslim if you need to have a gold-plated escalator with you when you travel to visit Indonesia? Mm. Um, you know, so I mean, there are all kinds of behavior that we can see mm. around us where you can say, well, yes, this person, you know, says their prayer five times a day, they give zakat, they fast during the month of Ramadan, but we can still ask them, and we do ask them, and we do interrogate them, is this what being a Muslim is? Mm -hmm. So for that sense, it seems to me, for, for Muslims, Islam is always an ontological category. It exceeds any kind of ontic manifestation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I would say, yes, so for me, that delight, any attempt to sort of positively contain it would mean to say something like this, as long as you say your prayers, as long as you do the five pillars or whatever, then it doesn't matter what else you may do. And I'm not sure that many Muslims would want to agree with that mm -hmm. or accept that, um, even though we may all be guilty of it. But mm. there is a sense and a certain disappointment yeah. that we have in others, in ourselves, when we see this behavior being um, mm. manifested around us. Okay. That's thrown up a lot of interesting things, but I want to kind of still stay with the objectivity-subjectivity debate, but kind of take it in a slightly different direction based on your work. So in um, Recalling the Caliphate, you say, God is objective, and the rest of us simply try our best. Now, what does that statement actually mean for our view of Islam in general, and specifically for our view of truth in Islam? I think what the intent of that passage was really a kind of a, a 
quick more to say that by definition, God cannot be historical, mm. but we are. So in a sense, um, our historical uh, fallenness, our historical uh, sensibilities, our comportment, our finitude, it's a mm. way of measuring infinitude, that in a sense that only objectivity then can be found in the infinite. Mm. And therefore, we will always be historical and finite beings, and that's why we can never be objective, not just because we can never have a God's eye view of the world or the universe or anything like that, but there is no way that we can transcend ourselves um, for any uh, sustained period of time. We are mm. always going to be locked into those limitations. That was the way of saying that. Um, that I guess my main kind of thing is this, that there are people who are willing to concede the historicity of Islam. Mm. But in doing that, there's an attempt to almost unravel it. Say that by talking about it historically, um, you show that it is not what it claims to be. And this is often the claim that's often made that, you know, well, we know that Muslims, the one always represented is this. Well, there's a difference between Arab Islam or South Asian Islam or Southeast Asian Islam because um, what we have is recent attempts for people to wear certain kinds of clothes which are not necessarily what they used to be. And there used to be a golden era when Muslims were much more easy or more... Um, they had a different kind of sensibility, and now that's all gone to pot. So there's a kind of a secularist critique within that mm -hmm. to find the kind of the Islam of poetry and uh, whatever. Now, the point about me is this, that I think the question about historicity is important. But for me, the historicity doesn't unravel Islam. It actually demonstrates its duration and its, um, its complexity. Mm. And, and in a way it's, it's kind of glory because in a way the fact that it has this historical kernel doesn't deny that it, is, it also contains within it a universal longing that Islam is always a, it's a marking of a journey mm. and by saying that it's historical all you're saying is that it is a journey towards something and like any journey, sometimes you move a step closer, sometimes you are lost, and sometimes you're found. So there's no point in which you can say, oh, this is, there is some sort of uh, progressive degeneracy, that Islam has gone from being authentic to inauthentic. Mm. These are constantly being reworked at different points in time. Now, when um, I've had discussions about this, the historicity of Islam, etc., um, something which always comes up is, oh, if you say this, well, then you could come to a situation where anything goes. If Islam is historical, well, then why do we need to do anything? We can just invent it as we go along. What would you say to those? You, no, I agree with you. You often hear that, but it's also sort of the most... Um, how can I say this? This is month of Ramadan, so I want to be kind about this. Um, but it's, it, I would say it is, it is a statement which... A moment's reflection would um, produce a recognition of its incoherence. Um, people can say anything about anything. That's not really an issue here. 
Um, again, to use a metaphor that I often fall back upon, you could say the same thing about language. The fact that language, you could say, jumble up words, change them to different mm. orders, etc. Yes, you can do that, but that will not make that language different. So in a way, you, you could say whatever you like, but the only way you would get any purchase is that if you transform the understanding of what Islam is. And you can only do that by bringing the Ummah along with you. Now, if the Ummah, all of them, or most of them, start believing that Islam is this and not that, it doesn't necessarily change what Islam is, it changes everything else. It changes our comportment towards it. It, change, it opens up a particular kind of contestation around it. So the idea that somehow what Islam is is guaranteed mm. by not having a belief in history is simply not true. What guarantees how we understand Islam and the consistency over time is not its internal features because, or a certain essence. It's the constant way that that is being reworked again and again in different iterations. You know, right now Islam is one and a half billion souls wide. It's 1,400 years old, at least deep, if not deeper. Mm. So it's to do with that. And simply, if you said, right, I will decide to change this to that or whatever, yes, I mean, you know, it has no purchase. I mean, for example, you probably know this, um, there was an attempt a few years ago, I'm not sure if she's still making this attempt, but uh, Urshad Manji had this brilliant idea that... Um, one of the most oppressive features of Muslims, one of the things that really affects them most is the fact that they all pray in the direction of Mecca. And I'm, you know, I have, I'm, I'm not sure I have been that many conversations with that many Muslims, but I've never come across anyone, I don't know anyone who actually thought that the biggest problem that Muslims face right now is the fact that they all pray in the direction of Mecca. Now, her solution was that people should be allowed to pray in whatever direction they want. I'm not sure how that solution has caught on. Um, I don't know whether you know there are people sitting in sort of small towns in Kazakhstan or in the jungles of um, South America or sort of simply thinking, you know, that's how we should be. You know what? This is the biggest problem we face. So it doesn't matter. It has no purchase. Because when Muslims pray in the direction of Mecca, why do we all pray in the direction of Mecca? Because there's a certain rationale to it. It's something that's constantly iterated. And it is something that the Ummah agrees that's how to be a Muslim. If the Ummah changes, there will be something else. But just because someone says that we, this is a, we've done, there's no, there's no sense in which the essence of Islam has prevented and there'll be others saying no you should pray in whatever way you want it didn't prevent that it's mm -hmm. so there's no reason to believe that if it but you need that guarantee the idea behind all of this it seems to be a certain sort of insecurity about why Muslims are Muslims and that you know if we did not have this um, belief in certain kind of inalienable trans-historical essences, the faith would disappear. And my argument is, in fact, 
It is precisely because there is no essences that the exercise of faith remains strong. Mm-hmm. In a way, if we could all see, literally see God and experience the positive experience um, in a direct way, then you wouldn't be having a matter of faith. Mm. It'd just be Master Austin's yeah. definition. But so I think there's a complete, I would say, a, a completely different way of understanding our comportment, our behavior towards issues. That doesn't mean that people don't express them in those ways. But I think underneath it all is a recognition that we hope how we are behaving is rightly guided. But there is a part of us that recognizes that we have no guarantees in this. That the guarantees come from others around us. Mm. And all those guarantees are provisional. They come from our understanding or the best will in our world, how we understand faith. This is why it's nonsense to say that, you know, most people are Muslims, not through a detailed study of Islam itself. Some are, but most are not. They are Muslims through the way in which they know how to be a Muslim through exchanges around them. Mm. They're Muslim as a communal social experience. <coughs> okay. Okay, thank you very much. For more decolonial dreaming, please visit www.criticalmuslimstudies.co.uk.